0: Before we jump into this episode, we wanted to give you a content warning. This episode contains a real-world example of a case that was solved using DNA technology. The case will briefly mention a few themes that may be distressful for some listeners, like sexual assault and murder. We'll give you a warning right before that section in case you'd like to skip it. So now, on with the show.
1: Welcome to this episode of Tiny Expeditions. It is season four, episode two, and we are gonna continue our conversation on DNA and forensics. My name is Chris Powell. I'm gonna be your storytelling guide for this episode.
0: And I'm Dr. Sarah Sharman, here to help you understand the science.
1: Today, Sarah and I are joined by a couple of familiar voices. The first of which is Dr. Thomas May, and he's gonna help us walk through the ethics behind using DNA
2: for forensics. I'm Thomas May. My uh, background is in philosophy and moral philosophy in particular. I work in the field of bioethics, particularly as it relates to the ethical, legal, and social implications of genomic sciences. Uh, I am a research faculty here at Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology, and I hold an endowed chair in bioethics at Washington State University School of Medicine.
0: And we're also joined again with Angelo DeLamana, the director of the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences.
3: I'm Angelo DeLamana. I'm the director of the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences.
1: The Golden State Killer is really the case that put DNA genetic genealogy and forensics on a lot of people's radar. If you're unfamiliar with the Golden State Killer, go back and listen to episode one of this season. In that episode, we talked through the whole case.
0: And in that episode, we also learned that we all have unique DNA. A fact that has proven helpful for law enforcement to solve thousands of cases that wouldn't have been solved otherwise. Personally, I think the use of DNA technology in the forensic world is truly amazing. I mean, we did catch the Golden State Killer after four decades using the technology. But you being a philosophy guy, Chris, I'm interested to hear your opinion.
1: Yeah, so the case like the Golden State Killer, it does raise some very interesting questions, right? Like, I think we all want the bad guys to be caught, right? Like, you hear the Golden State Killer, and you want the Golden State Killer to face justice. But on the flip side of that, what's the price that we're willing to pay personally in order to catch the bad guys, right? Do we want people to have access to our personal information, our DNA, our... History that that DNA represents. I mean, it's it's all questions that we have to wrestle with and thankfully We have dr. Tom may here to help us
2: wrestle with those questions I think the most important elements of that case for uh, what we think about in terms of the LCS the ethical legal and social implications of genetic sciences Are its implications for privacy? Uh, the golden state killer uh, himself had never submitted his DNA sample to any DNA databases; it was not present in any DNA databases. But when law enforcement had a DNA sample from a crime scene, they were able to upload that data to a uh, ancestry-related uh, genealogy database (GED match) and find distant cousins of the Golden State Killer. Uh, they weren't close cousins. They weren't first or second cousins, but they were third cousins and more distant than that. And through those matches, we're able to build a family tree of the Golden State Killer to identify uh, about a half dozen individuals who were in the state of California at the time of the crimes and possibly could be the Golden State Killer. Uh, The law enforcement was then able to Uh, surreptitiously obtain DNA samples from those individuals and was able to match one to the genetic material that had been left behind at the crime scene. Uh, The implications of this for privacy are uh, quite profound in that uh, we were able to identify the Golden State Killer, or law enforcement was able to identify the Golden State Killer, not through his own submission of his DNA profile to a genetic database, but by a distant cousin's submission of DNA material to a genetic database, which means that uh, individuals, we know that individuals can be uh, traced with enough effort and enough genealogy work through their family trees, even if they themselves do not submit that information. And so that has very profound implications for privacy.
0: We live in a society that does everything at hyperspeed. So now that we have this technology, everybody wants to use it to catch the bad guys, understandably so. But should we slow down and make sure that we're making appropriate ethical considerations when creating legislation around DNA privacy?
1: Each of us make ethical decisions every single day of our lives. The question is, are we fully aware as we're making those decisions? Well, we probably should be, and that's the whole point of this episode. How are we coming to these ethical conclusions? Are we being pragmatic? Do we just make these decisions based on what's good for the common good? Or do we have a sense of justice that we need to see lived out in society? Are we making these decisions based on equality? Or do we have some kind of a virtual or moral center that we're pulling from to make these decisions, right? These are all questions that we go through, but many of us go through these questions without even really thinking about it. But if we don't think about it, then in many cases, we just let these kind of things happen. And before we know it, our privacy
2: could actually be gone. Yeah, I think there's a balance to be drawn here. I agree with you that in the case of serial killers, I think most people think this is a very good use of genetic uh, databases, right? But we also have to remember that there's a lot of history in the United States anyway about protection of privacy that will sacrifice some law enforcement goals, right? So if we didn't have restrictions in search search and seizure, for example, it would be much easier for law enforcement to catch criminals for a variety of types of crimes. But we recognize that the downsides of those violations of privacy, the unrestricted violation of privacy, if you will, right? That those are uh, even greater than some of the crimes that don't get solved because we have those restrictions in place. I think we have to think seriously about genetic material in the same way, right? It having unrestricted law enforcement use of databases could represent a violation of fundamental individual privacy for the in the ways that we've been describing here today uh, that are have implications for the loss of privacy that may outweigh some law enforcement aims. And so we are so new in the uh, implementation of this technology that really is sort of a wild west out there right now. We don't have regulations to guide us in uh, how to reasonably restrict ourselves. And so I think we have to spend a lot more time and effort thinking about those guidelines and what regulations we need to have in place to protect individuals' privacy in this new age of genomic information, where information about you can be obtained, even if you don't want it to be obtained, through others' participation in genetic databases.
1: So is this a trade that we're willing to make? Our privacy for capturing the bad guys? I guess an even deeper question is, is that really the choice that's put before us? Or is this question even more nuanced than simply trading privacy for catching bad guys?
0: What Dr. May just said is another really important point. The Golden State Killer never uploaded his DNA to a database, but he was caught because a distant relative was in the system. The big question becomes how much control should I have over my DNA information once I've submitted it to a database? DNA helps solve crimes and diagnose diseases, which I would argue are very important. But what happens if your DNA is used for something you did not originally consent to or you don't believe in?
2: In the uh, 2000s where uh, the uh, researchers, genetic researchers, at Arizona State University wanted to do a study of uh, the potential genetic basis of diabetes. Diabetes was particularly prevalent in a Native American tribe in the area, the Havasupai tribe. Uh, This uh, tribe agreed to participate in the genetic study of diabetes in the hopes that it would result in the advancement of treatments and cures for diabetes. Uh, Nothing was found, no advancement was made there, but the genetic material provided was then used for a number of other studies, including some that might potentially be stigmatizing to the community, as well as uh, studies that uh, delved into the uh, historical migration of ancestors of the tribe across the Bering Straits that were a threat to deeply held spiritual beliefs within the the tribal community. So these were, these other projects, these extra diabetes projects, if you will, were things that the tribe members had not consented to that were undertaken using the genetic material that was provided for the diabetes study. So it's another example of how the advancement of science sort of neglected the effects of other projects on that community and the ways that that community might be affected or harmed by those studies.
1: It's hard to imagine if you were a member of the Havasupai tribe to be told one particular cultural narrative only to be told, well this is not true. I mean what the people of the Havasupai tribe signed up for was diabetes research and what they got was something that contradicted their founding cultural narratives. DNA redefine their reality? What if DNA defines a reality that is not representative of the world that exists? The CODIS database, mentioned in our previous episode, contains the DNA of those with felony charges. This database is largely composed of those who are black, indigenous, and people of color. Is DNA technology helping increase equitable justice,
2: or is it contributing to the inequality in the system? If we don't have uh, equal application and enforcement of laws to all groups, right, the sense of equal standing within society and the sense of uh, equality of individuals uh, will be lost. You know we need to back up the, those ideals with the way that we implement the rules of society and what we know you know as a fact uh, today in society is that some populations are overrepresented in the criminal justice system by a very large margin. You know, the, num- the percentage of those communities that are in prisons far exceeds the percentage of that, uh, that community in the general population, right? And the implications of this then is if we everybody who gets placed in a prison has their genetic material entered into CODIS for future law enforcement use, then the application and enforcement of laws will reflect the disparity in imprisonment that we see in our society in general. So it will further exacerbate those inequalities. And I think that's a very serious problem for our country as a whole. You know, we, again, I think it's very important to have an understanding of equality in which uh, laws themselves are equally applicable to all segments of society and all populations within society, and that enforcement will be equal within those different segments of society.
0: Thankfully, people are thinking and talking about these inequities, and we do have some regulations in place. Here's Director Delamana to tell us more about CODIS legislation.
3: As the DNA um, database laws were um, implemented throughout this country, Alabama in 1994, we were one of the original six states. There were six states that passed a law that established the DNA Identification Act and our DNA database law. And us and the other five um, established the statute that allowed at that time for the collection of a DNA reference sample from any individual convicted of any felony. So the two operative words in that sentence are convicted and felony. Okay, Um, There was only six states uh, in the in the mid-90s that had that that type of um, law on the books. The vast majority of the other states when they first uh, established their own DNA database laws um, typically said your sample would go into the DNA database if you were convicted for either a sex offense or a violent offense like homicide, for example. And in, in terms of legislation, what is really light speed, you know, in the, in, in the 10-year period All 44 other states went back and amended their legislation to be more like Alabama's legislation. And so as we sit here today, every state in the union collects from all convicted felons and burglary-type offenders. Another wave of, of amendments to the DNA database laws at the federal level and the state level happened where instead of... Only collecting DNA samples upon conviction for any felony The next wave dealt with considering whether or not we could collect a DNA sample at the point of arrest for any felony so The the reasoning behind that is if you could identify an individual as the perpetrator when they're in the jail before they're released on bond at the point of arrest, felony arrest, then you may not only prevent other crimes from happening, um, but, but you wouldn't necessarily have to wait for the court system to complete the adjudication process that may take a year to two years to result in a conviction. And when you're arrested, you know, you 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 haven't been convicted of anything. You you've met a threshold for probable cause, but you haven't been been convicted of anything. And so, placing a DNA sample in the database um, at the point of arrest uh, was a hotly debated topic, you know, in in the late 2008 to 2000 and probably 15 time period. Um, but ultimately. Um, in cases that went all the way up to the Supreme Court uh, and in in Alabama in our legislature uh, as we sit here today now 31 states uh, including Alabama now collect a DNA sample at the point of arrest for any felony and certain misdemeanors that have a predisposition to be sex offense related so in Alabama I believe we have uh, one of the fairest DNA database laws in the country if you provide a DNA sample pursuant to a felony arrest, and then that, that charge is either, you know, uh, it could be dropped, it could be no billed by a grand jury, you could be found not guilty at trial, et cetera. There's a process in place that if you wish to have your sample expunged, you can do so.
1: Sarah, it's hard to talk about the criminal justice system and forensics without talking about the idea of the panopticon. Are you familiar with the panopticon?
0: Yeah, that's the idea that we're constantly being watched and monitored by the man, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So this idea came up as a way of the ideal structuring for a prison, right? So you have a guard that's in the center, and this guard at any point can see any prisoner that's in the system. The idea is that not only is it helpful for the guard to see everyone, but if you feel like you're being watched, you behave differently. So this idea was picked up in philosophy and it's been looked at as a way of structuring society, right? If we in society think that we're being watched at any given point, we will behave differently. We walk in buildings and we're fully aware that we are being watched at basically all times. We look for the cameras that are in the room. The question that Really came up in my mind though as we were talking with Dr. May and Angelo is, well, is our DNA just another way of us
2: being watched? We're seeing the advent of artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning in ways that uh, predicting your behavior and your circumstances through things that don't directly say you have those traits or tendencies is increasingly possible. You know, we're seeing commercial firms identify the likelihood that you will want a certain product through indirect behaviors, right? And it's machine learning that's saying people who act in these ways tend to like this product, right? And we're not even we're not even aware of this tendency ourselves, right? And all of these things can be threats to our privacy, our freedoms through the surveillance state that are not unique To genetics right Uh, and the fact that genetics can make you identifiable through distant relatives is just one more instantiation of that threat and concern that we all should be aware of and again calls for the need to think very seriously among our our elected representatives about the types of regulations and laws and protections that need to be put into place so that this ability is not misused.
0: I think you could argue that we invite this type of surveillance into our lives because it offers us certain benefits. Looking at my DNA could help predict whether I'm gonna have health problems in the future. And I love that I can turn my lights on just by talking to Alexa. But what if this technology starts to predict our behavior? And this has actually been shown. In the 2000s, Target actually predicted a woman's pregnancy by looking at her shopping habits online. This is great for marketing, but is it good if we're using it to predict future criminal behavior?
3: In that first five to 10-year period, we had and compiled a lot of objective data that showed when we got a cold hit, so when we identified the perpetrator in a previously unsolved sexual assault case, okay. Almost 80% of the time, that individual went into the database for a property crime, for a burglary conviction. And so what that showed, which was consistent with our experience in working thousands of cases, is that sexual assault is oftentimes a crime of opportunity. So you have an individual, for example, that may be struggling with a drug addiction. And so they're breaking into apartments to try and find electronics to then go to a pawn shop to get money so that they can support their drug habit. And so they break into an apartment on Monday and they break into another apartment on Tuesday and they may break into a third apartment on Wednesday. And now they come across a co-ed who's sleeping in between classes in the middle of the day they didn't know that the individual would be there but that opportunity presents itself and and in that example when it does they oftentimes would escalate to sexual assault and if they had provided a sample to the DNA database for the burglary conviction if and when they escalated to sexual assault uh... we would then identify them by searching CODIS because we had their sample in the database for the burglary conviction
1: Sarah, I don't know if you remember the movie Minority Report, but in that movie, there was a whole division of law enforcement that dealt with pre-crimes where they would arrest people before they committed crimes. Now, we don't have pre-crime divisions, but it is interesting of what Angelo was telling us that forensic experts readily admit that there's some sort of a connection between past criminal behavior and future criminal behavior.
0: If you follow true crime stories like I do, you will have probably heard plenty of examples of criminals who escalate from a menial crime to more serious ones. But what about the burglar who just stays a burglar and later gets profiled and accused of a crime they didn't commit? While examples like these raise a lot of questions, there are some really great benefits that have come from the use of DNA in forensics, one of which is proving innocence of those wrongly accused of crimes
3: the DNA testing that is that goes on each and every day is cutting edge in Alabama. And that's uh, that's a great thing that we take a lot of pride in is that we have the certainly the great ability to not just identify perpetrators of violent acts um, across thousands of cases a year, but also to exclude individuals who are falsely accused. That is the true power of forensic DNA testing. And it's often overlooked, um, but it's important to me that Uh, People recognize that objective, independent forensic DNA testing is exactly what an individual who is falsely accused would want to happen, right? Um, Because that is an independent, objective way to say you are not the source of a potential
1: crime scene stain in in a particular case. DNA is powerful. It can make sure that the bad guys go to prison for a really long time, and it can also exonerate those who are falsely accused. When we sat down with Angelo, we were curious and asked him to give us an example of a case that was solved using DNA technologies. Now, in the very beginning of this episode, we gave you a warning that we were going to share something that included a description of sexual assault and murder. It's happening right now, so if you would like to skip ahead, please do so. This will take about three minutes of time, and you can join back in with the episode. But here's Angelo to tell us of a cold case that was brought back to life through DNA technology. So we had a
3: a rape-murder case of of an elderly lady who uh, was a a widow and had lived alone in in the Smithfield community outside of Troy, Alabama. And was just a, a lovely old lady that the community just adored, and it was very shocking to that community um, in the in the early '90s when uh, when she was she was brutally uh, raped and murdered, and for years. Uh, as law enforcement would develop suspects and submit samples. We had our crime scene stains that were recovered. We had DNA profiles of evidence recovered from her body at autopsy, demonstrating that a sexual assault had happened. Um, and as law enforcement would develop suspects, for 15 years, we, we continued to, to do DNA testing on the submitted suspect. And so this, this went on uh, and we continued to Uh, test suspects, um, almost a hundred different suspects are submitted on this particular case and uh, we continue to exclude them saying that's not the perpetrator that's not the source of the semen uh, or the source of the crime scene stain recovered from the victim's body and uh, one of the great uh, allowances in our DNA database law is not just that individuals had to provide a sample if they were convicted uh, of a felony but also if they had ever applied for a pardon and so this is one of these examples where an individual 20 to 25 years after the offense wanted to have his civil rights restored and in Alabama that typically happens for one of two reasons they want to have the, the ability to vote or they want to have the ability to purchase a firearm, and if you if you were convicted uh, of a qualifying offense, and the way the Alabama law was written, or you were incarcerated for a qualifying offense on or after May 6 of 94, then when you apply for a pardon, um, you're required to provide a DNA sample. And so this individual showed up at a probation office uh, wanting to apply for a pardon. He filled out the paperwork and the probation officer in Central Alabama said there's a new, new law and, and we'll process your um, paperwork for application for a pardon, but you have to provide a, a mouth swab and a DNA sample to the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences. And so thankfully that probation officer swabbed him right then, that day. And she had uh, asked him to come back uh, in a couple of days to finalize the paperwork and sign all the pardon application he never returned and but that sample was collected sent to our laboratory and I still remember the feeling today when that when we conducted that search and it hit to that unsolved case I remember the case number like it was yesterday and I thought I cannot believe we have solved it we'd known her as Miss Edna uh, it was solved Miss Edna's case. And, and it, it's just another great example of the types of, of cases that that we feel very responsible to play an important role in trying to solve, and it happens every day. You know, every victim is important, every case is important. And our role in that process is, is to conduct the highest quality forensic testing available using the latest technology so that we can develop a DNA profile enter it into a lawfully protected um, database to try and identify repeat offenders. And, you know, we're very successful in doing that.
1: Sarah, we've covered a lot of ground in this episode. and We've asked a lot of really important questions, but I'm curious where, where you land on this, right? So from a continuum to using our information to catch the bad guys to protecting our privacy and not using that information to catch bad guys like where where are you on all this
0: I'm afraid it's not so black and white so obviously I think it's great that we're catching serial killers and we're solving cold cases giving people the peace of mind that you know their family member's killer has been caught
1: I think you're right this is something that is not as you know clearly defined as what many of us think but I am grateful for those uh, like Angelo and Dr. May who are thinking through these questions and helping us wrestle because this is not something that's going to be settled once and for all. We're going to have to continue to wrestle as new cases are being presented and we find ourselves in new scenarios. We all have to stay curious and keep asking these questions.
0: Thank you for joining us for this tiny expedition into the ethics of DNA technology in the forensic space.
1: Next episode, we'll embark on a journey to northern peat bogs, where we'll discover how researchers are harnessing the power of genomics to tackle the pressing challenges of climate change.
0: Tiny Expeditions is a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. We're a nonprofit research institution in Huntsville, Alabama.
1: We've got a campus full of scientists doing public research, alongside companies developing products and services, all with one aim to translate genomic discoveries into real-world applications that make for a healthier, more sustainable world. That includes everything from cancer research to agriculture for a changing climate.
0: If you find our podcast interesting, please rate, review, like, and subscribe on the podcast app of your choice. And tell someone that you listen to this interesting little story about genetics. Knowledge is better when you share it.
1: Thanks for joining us.